It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. We're recording this episode on March 6th, 2021, which is still part of the National Day of Unplugging. And I really wish that I had known about this day farther in advance because A, I would have encouraged you, the listener, to participate in this day, and B, I would have set myself up for more success to participate. I'm not quite sure how I even came across this day. I'm pausing to reflect on that. Possibly Instagram. So I guess social media can be beneficial after all. (laughs) But I've been thinking a lot about digital minimalism, inspired by our friend Adam Yasmin, who encouraged me to read a book called Digital Minimalism recently, which is one of the best books I've read in a while. And I think that I've been reflecting on my usage of devices, especially my phone, for years, but I haven't really committed to reducing them in a major way. I set up the standard things that you can do on the iPhone, which is it gives you alerts. You can put time limits on your apps. That didn't really help. I just ended up ignoring them. And then I eventually I turned it off because it was pointless for me. I have tried kind of half-assed to turn off my device an hour or so before bed. I've tried not using my device first thing in the morning. And I've realized through all of these trials how difficult it is to do those things. So when I heard about National Day of Unplugging, I thought, I've got to give this a try. I looked at my calendar. I was unable, based on my business commitments, to do the full 24 hours that they recommend. However, I did 16 hours, and that was quite profound. So yesterday, last night, was a Friday, March 5th. I set my whole night up so that I really had nothing important to do after sundown because at sundown, that was when the day officially began. And I turned off all my devices. I turned off my phone, my iPad, and my computer and set them out of sight so I wouldn't be tempted. I turned off the internet, the Wi-Fi. What I didn't turn off was my Apple Watch, but I set that on do not disturb or airplane mode so I wouldn't get alerted. I really love using my Apple Watch. So I will say I wasn't fully device free. I like using the watch because it tracks my steps. It shows me the time and it tracks my water intake through my fancy water bottle. If you're watching on YouTube, it's called a hydrate. And if you're not watching on YouTube, we'll put this in the link in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the podcast section of our website, we have a podcast player, we have the YouTube video, and we also have a full transcript with links to everything we mention and will likely mention a lot, books, products, things that are supporting us, and information about days like the National Day of Unplugging in case you want to participate next year. I also think, by the way, that you can absolutely use the tools that the National Day of Unplugging website and social media accounts recommend. You can do this anytime. You don't just have to celebrate Earth Day on Earth Day, right? You can celebrate the Earth year-round. Same thing is true with the National Day of Unplugging. So I went to very minimal device usage, and it was an absolutely fascinating process that I want to start off this conversation on, especially because Jason, Adam Yasmin, and I did an event on Clubhouse about productivity. And that led up until sundown for me in Los Angeles. And so that was the last thing I did online. I would love to talk about that with you, Jason. And before we get into it, though, I will share more about my experience. The first thing I noticed was that when I turned off my devices, I had a moment of not knowing what the heck I was going to do for the rest of my night. I had set myself up with a plan, 
But I'm telling you, Jason, that I felt really strange for the first hour. It blew my mind. It reminds me of whenever I've done a cleanse, a detox, or a fast. For example, a a juice cleanse, which I know you've done too, Jason. It's like that moment when you realize like this is the last meal I'm going to eat for however many days. And you feel empowered, but you also feel nervous because we're used to eating food. We're used to the nourishment. We're used to the the sensation of it. And you know when you're on maybe the second or third day of a juice cleanse, you really miss chewing food? You miss the texture? That's the closest I can describe to how it felt in that first hour of not having my device. It was just like, I just, it felt unfamiliar to not go to my phone. And it's remarkable how in my head, normally I think, oh yeah, I can easily go an hour without my phone. And it feels easy because after the hour's over, I'll pick up my phone. But in this practice, I was going for 16 hours, which isn't that much time. But in the context of how often I typically use my phone in a 16-hour window, now granted, eight of those hours I was sleeping, so it was really only eight hours, but my brain was like, oh my gosh, like it was that withdrawal feeling. And I was fascinated by it. I also decided that I was going to go a period of time without even listening to music because, of course, we use devices for music. I don't have a little like analog radio player or anything nearby. So typically, I would use my phone, my computer, my iPad for that. I have an Apple HomePod, which is their speaker, and that's connected to the internet. So I guess actually in hindsight, I didn't turn off the internet quite yet because I eventually turned the HomePod on. And the only reason I felt comfortable doing that is because the National Day of Unplugging said that the main goal was to not use your eyes to look at screens. But if you wanted to listen to things, it was different. So that's, I think, an important distinction. I was trying to go cold turkey. And what I ended up doing with the first few hours of my time off devices was cleaning and making dinner. And I thought, I don't need to listen to music, but I had enough of the silence. (laughs) I was like, all right, that's enough silence for now. I'll listen to some music. (laughs) It was also interesting too, to like, when you turn off things and your senses are heightened, you notice so many sounds that you might not notice when you're looking at something, first of all, right? Because it's fascinating to think like, The way that we're using our vision takes so much brain power that we tune out noises, right? It's like if somebody's talking to you and you're on your phone, you're probably not absorbing everything that they're saying because our brain is processing the visuals. So without visuals, at least from my device, I was noticing the street sounds and nature sounds and I opened up a window and I like wanted stimulation. I wanted to hear something. And I think that's why eventually I, I asked my HomePod, you know, Siri to play some music and I played classical music. I was like, all right, I'm going to listen to something instrumental with no music and very calming. And it was lovely, actually. Then I switched over to an instrumental chill playlist. At least that's what Apple called it. And that was great, too. It kind of sounded like elevator music or like music you hear in a restaurant. And I enjoyed that experience a lot. No words, just nice, relaxing music. And I deep cleaned my home so much. And then I made a meal fully present. Normally, I would be on my device. It would be in the kitchen, perhaps. And I would be scrolling through social media, like in between steps, like while I was waiting for something to cook on the stove, I'd pick up my phone and look through it. Now I just cleaned in between, like I was, I cooked a cauliflower rice stir fry. And as that was cooking, I went around the kitchen and continued cleaning and put things away and went back to my food. And then the other big thing that was interesting was eating without devices, because normally I watch something every time I eat. I'm either on social media scrolling, TikTok, for example, or I'll watch a clip of a TV show or part of a movie or something. 
And to sit down and eat a meal, I was by myself. So I'm sitting there quietly eating a meal, not looking at any devices. And it was too awkward to like read a book or something while I was eating. So I just sat there and it was like, why does that feel so foreign? It was such a fascinating experience. And then the other remarkable thing is that I got so much cleaning and tidying done in about two hours. I could not believe how much I did in that time. Time felt elongated. It felt so stretched out. Those two hours were, were at a pace that I don't normally sense when I'm on a device, when everything feels fast-paced all the time. So the perspective that I got from that made me realize that so many of us feel like well, there's not enough time in the day. But what if that's because we are using devices and they've trained us to believe that and have that sensation, but the reality of life is that there's plenty of time in the day to get a lot of things done. We are just so distracted by our devices, we've lost so much sense of time. The other interesting thing was is that I ended up going to bed way earlier than normal, like at least an hour earlier, because I just ran out of things to do without TV and devices. Normally, I have my to-do list and I'm working on things or I'm watching things or I'm doing something creative on a device. And without those tendencies, there really wasn't much left for me to do. I normally read books on on my iPad and I didn't allow myself to do that. So I just picked up my journal and I picked up a, a hard copy book that I had and I read a little bit of that. I journaled a little and then I went to sleep. And then I woke up and I used my phone and my iPad as alarms, but they were completely off. I didn't turn them back on. I didn't turn the internet on. I didn't go to my computer until I really had to for business today. And I actually found myself dreading going back to devices, even after just 16 hours of being off of them. And then once I got back on my computer, I also realized I don't really need my phone that much. I did use it a few times to take photos because I'm working on a photo project right now. So I I took like a couple basic photos before I turned my computer on. But that's all I've used my phone for today, aside from the alarm. And then I turned on my computer, I got business done. And as soon as one part of my business was done, I closed my computer and went back and I enjoyed lunch today without devices. And I found myself paying more attention to how I was making my food, paying more attention to how I was eating my food, paying more attention to the way the food tasted and the sensations of it, and just really slowing down to enjoy it. And now here we are recording the podcast. So This is only the second time I've used my computer today. I think it's interesting that, first of all, Whitney, you use the word dread to describe getting back on your devices, because that's a very particular word, not anxious, not nervous, dread. Like that word feels to me like it's a bit heavier, more dense. Maybe there's a little bit of fear. You know, dread is a very, that's interesting, your word choice. And before I get into what I did on my evening of the National Day of Unplugging, I'm curious why, I don't know about why you chose that word, but it hit me in a very particular way. And so when you say dread, what is, what what is that feeling? How do you describe that feeling? Was it like, ugh, I don't want to touch my phone or like, oh God, once I turn it back on, I'm going to get sucked in and I don't know if I can pull myself back out. So just really quickly, what what do you mean in terms of a sensation or a set of feelings when you use the word dreading to get back on your devices? I think it is what you're saying, which is that that fear of being sucked back into it and noticing the intensity and the anxiousness that goes along with that. There was a different level of anxiety in that I was a little concerned that something happened that needed my attention, even though National Day of Unplugging fell on a Friday night to a Saturday where the great majority of people aren't working. So that made it easier. And it did turn out that when I turned on my device, I didn't really have any messages. I think I had like one from a friend. I don't think even you had messaged me, Jason. 
And I remember too, before I turned off my devices, I wish that there was a setting on the phone that would alert people like, hey, I'm not going to be on my phone for X amount of time. If it's an emergency, here's how to reach me. That's something that I was reflecting on. Like there must be some sort of system set up that way, right? Like you can do that with auto replies on emails, but how do you set that up for your devices? And I wondered moving forward if it would be beneficial to set more regular hours like this. Like maybe, crazy idea, but maybe I could set my business schedule up where I don't work after a certain time. And so that people know they're tr- I'm basically training them by setting boundaries that I will not reply to them after or before this time. And that's something that I would really like to do, Jason. You know, I also reflect a lot on the urgency in which people expect replies from us and how if we don't reply within a certain amount of time, we think something's wrong. I'm guilty of this too. And I think that's a huge issue. I believe that comes up in Digital Minimalism, the book that I referenced. What you're saying in your detailing makes me reflect on the levels of addiction that so many of us have. And I don't use that word lightly. The way that you were kind of describing your 16-hour fast from devices, though, Whitney, you use the word withdrawal, too. I mean, there are many pieces of language and descriptors you use that are commonly also used for people dealing with addiction. And similar to you last night, after our clubhouse room ended with Adam, and I was waiting for my girlfriend, Laura, to come over and have dinner, I remember feeling the sensation in my body of anxiety and watching myself go over to pick up my phone and go, why are you doing this? Like having a pattern interrupt where I was having a conversation with myself going, why are you doing this? And I realized that it's become habituated, whether I need to or not for business or catching up with friends or any social uh, interactions. I'm just checking the phone to check the phone. There's no reason why I'm checking it, to be honest. There's no palpable reason why I need to look at my email for the 55th time today, why I need to check my Instagram DMs for the 75th time today, why I need to go refresh Clubhouse to see if I've crossed a thousand followers yet. There's no reason for me to do this shit. But I observed also my habituation and dare I say my addiction, that there's something I'm trying to receive from checking this device over and over again. And we talked about it before, the neurochemical addiction of how when we get a new follower, we get a new like, we get a new email, it's a dopamine hit. And why is that important? Because we've talked about dopamine and neurotransmitters, and that dopamine is the feel-good neurotransmitter. It's like, yay, I did a good job. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. Like It's a motivating, rewarding neurochemical in our brains. So I also have to admit that on some level, I observe myself being habituated to unconsciously picking up the phone. And also that I am chemically addicted to whatever little digital rewards I'm getting. And you and I have certainly talked, you know, ad nauseum about some of the implications of this in our assessment of the social dilemma and fake famous and childhood 2.0. And to you, dear listener, if you haven't heard those episodes yet where we really break down a lot of the research and social ramifications and our opinions on those documentaries, we will link to all those episodes again in the show notes at wellevator.com. Our website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And you can click on the podcast section and go to the transcript in the show notes. The interesting part about this process for me of observing my hand and my body going toward the phone to pick it up and look at it. And this pattern interrupt of saying, why are you doing this? Like literally asking out loud. It was such a fascinating moment, Whitney, because I feel it wasn't necessarily like I was having a disembodied experience, but there's moments in my life, whether that's been through really deep meditation or float tank therapy or using different psychedelic drugs, like I talked about in our ayahuasca episodes, which we will also link to in the show notes for you, dear listener. It wasn't exactly like that level of detachment or disembodiment, but I... I, the eternal I, my soul, my spirit. There's so many different ways we could phrase this. I was just, I was observing my body reaching for the phone. It was that level of presence. And you talked about being super present at your meal, Whitney, and being super present with your cleaning and tidying of the house. My version of that was being super present, watching my hand go toward the phone and going, uh-uh-uh, we don't need to do this. Like, 
let's make a meal with our girlfriend, have dinner, be present, not be on our phones, spend time with the fur babies on the couch, just being. And I think that, you know, this brings up an interesting thing because, you know, you had withdrawals. I noticed myself having a very anxious, habitual tendency just to grab the phone to grab it. And I think the question is, what steps do we take to continue to be present and be very intentional about our usage? Because you and I have talked about a lot, you know, am I going to get off social media completely or just restrict my usage? I think your idea of limiting it to business hours and training people to observe those boundaries is important because I've observed myself, you know, being on my computer at 10 p.m., trying to squeeze in a little bit more work and realizing that's not really how I want to live. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy for my sleep hygiene. I don't think it's healthy for my mental health in general. What we're talking about is sort of raging against the machine, for lack of a better term, when the world is expecting us to be more productive. And that's one thing we talked about in our clubhouse room with Adam last night was, you know, Adam kept saying, he's like, I sound like a broken record. He's like, we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. And I think to his point though, Wit, there's this idea because we're at home and we're not commuting in our cars and we're not in the road that we have these extra hours in the day that we ought to be more productive with, whether that's entrepreneurs, like we've said in previous episodes of business coaches and entrepreneurs saying, this is your time to crush it. You have all this time to do your dream thing, to write your book, to launch your course, to do your thing. Or if you're an employee talking to my friends that are full-time employees that are working from home, it's a very similar mentality, right? Of well, you're not commuting, so use those two extra hours you'd be on the road to work. But what are we, what is all this for? Is it for shareholder value? Is it to extract and pummel the maximum amount of efficiency out of every single human being? And I think ultimately what I want to look at, Whitney, is overcoming all of the messages and the marketing and the media that seeks to further commodify human beings and treat us as objects and treat us as robots and treat us as cogs in the machine. And it's not to say that work isn't important. Of course, work is important. But this blind allegiance to productivity and efficiency and hard work at the risk of presence, at the risk of connecting with our loved ones, at the risk of not making nourishing meals for ourselves, at the risk of, as I was saying prior to our recording, I realize I haven't been playing with my animals. Like, I need to go take my dog outside and play ball with her, for fuck's sake. You know, work will get done. It'll get done when it gets done. And, you know, you and I have a, a thing on TikTok with a list of things to do, right? And I'm aware, like, we have a lot of things we want to accomplish for our, not only our individual businesses, but our Wellevator business in this podcast. But damn it, I'm going to go outside and play ball with my dog, and shit will get done when it gets done. And it's not to be laissez-faire about it, because some people might say, well, that's a lazy approach, Jason. You know, stuff's got to get done. Yeah, but I also want to have like good connected time with the people I love and care about. That's important to me too. Having good quality time with the people I love and care about, whether those be animals, human or otherwise. <laughs> I don't even know what the otherwise is. Who else am I hanging out with? Ghosts? Apparitions? Pet rocks? Sometimes I say shit and I don't even know what it means, but welcome to the podcast. <laughs> but I'm curious, Whitney, you know, with this pressure that we have talked about in Clubhouse and this pressure I'm talking about now, when you mentioned feeling this thing of expecting a reply right away or certain people we work with either explicitly stating so or subtly implying, how do we, I don't know, this is something I still struggle with without being like blunt with people, like I'll get back to you when I get back to you. You know, how do we start to enforce these boundaries and how do we start training people to not expect stuff from us right away when they want it. What are your thoughts on that? How do we start to do this? Because I think sometimes I'm ready to like be aggressive about it and I don't really want to be aggressive with people, but I still want to be clear enough to let them know I'm not jumping through their hoops when they want me to jump through their hoops. Does that make sense? I think the great majority of this is simply leading by example and people figure it out real quick. If you don't respond to them, right away, they know that you're not a person that responds really quickly. If you do get back to them eventually, the definition of quick is very relative. I mean, I think about this all the time. Like there's, I recently went through all my unread emails, which is a few hundred, 
And I started organizing them and trying to figure out like, how am I going to get through them, which are actually important? Do I need to unsubscribe to newsletters? Yeah, I do this maybe once a year or so. And there are email unread emails that I have anxiety about because I'm worried that the people are going to think I'm never going to respond. And honestly, there will be times where I literally never respond to somebody. That just happens because it's a low priority for me. And unless somebody follows up, it might never become a higher priority. I think that's actually a very smart choice is for us on both ends of this is if we message somebody, we shouldn't take offense unless they tell us they're not interested. If they never reply, they might have forgotten. They might have other priorities. They might be waiting for you to become a bigger priority. Or they might have different time relationships than you or relationships to time, I should say. So I think it's on both sides of this, Jason. For the majority of people in life, you don't have to offer an explanation. You simply reply when you're ready to reply. And I think culturally, we become accustomed to apologizing. This actually just happened in a business transaction that I'm in. I'm not in a rush, but the people that I'm corresponding with, I think, are afraid that I'm upset with them for not replying right away. I'm not actually. (laughs) Multiple times, there's been a gap of a few days, maybe a week in between emails from them. And they always apologize profusely. And and I don't know how many times to say to them, it's okay. (laughs) It's not that big of a deal to me. There's not a sense of urgency yet. So I think setting more boundaries for ourselves and for others and being very clear when it is urgent and then redefining what that means. You know, like last night I texted somebody and I said, Hey, like, you know, if you need to reach me, my phone's going to be off. So unless it's urgent, please don't reach out to me until tomorrow. And I have it set on my phone that if somebody calls me twice in a row, then it'll come through. Do not disturb, which I think is a really nice feature. It's not set up that way for texting. And I think it's interesting because sometimes people will text urgent things because they're used to getting a quick response. And now actually, Jason, the other point of this that's interesting is there are so many forms of communication now. And I think this is part of where my anxiety is, is people direct message you on Instagram, sometimes on Facebook, sometimes on Twitter, sometimes on LinkedIn. So direct messages, there are so many channels. And from my perspective, That's for most people, you shouldn't assume that you're going to get a quick response to a DM. However, there are some people who treat their DMs as text messages, like they're in there corresponding a lot. Then we've got text messages, we have email, we have phone calls. We even have the lost art of in-person communication, right? So there's a lot of different avenues in which somebody might try to reach us. And I think first and foremost, we have to be very, very clear. We can set up automated systems like I was talking about earlier. You can, I think, on a lot of the social media platforms, set up an auto reply. So that's one thing you can try. You can say, hey, I only check this on this day or X amount of times per week or during this time frame. And this was actually something that Tim Ferriss wrote about in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek. And he recommended... Back when that book was written, which feels like an eternity ago, but I want to say like 2006, perhaps, that came out, maybe 2008. I think I read it. Actually, maybe it was, I don't know. I think I read it between 2008 and 2010, remembering correctly, which feels like a very long time ago. But, you know, that still applies today. If you create boundaries, if you correspond with people and you say, you know, through your example, but also creating boundaries with them to let them know that these are the hours in which you'll actually hear back from me, then somebody can feel a little bit more comfortable. And I honestly wish more people would do that. I wish more people used auto replies. Because when I send an Instagram DM, like there's still a question in my head, will I ever hear back from this person? (laughs) However, that's coming back to the follow-up. Like I said, when somebody follows up with me, 
they become at least a slightly higher priority. By the third time somebody follows up with me, if they're very kind and professional about it, they're a priority because I know that they really care. Most people don't follow up. And that sometimes signals to me that they're not a priority because I don't feel like a priority to them. So you can do the same thing if you're on the opposite end and you're waiting to hear back from somebody. Maybe they're spending less time on their devices or maybe they've set more time boundaries. So don't be afraid to follow up and do it kindly and professionally or respectfully. And you might hear back. And that's actually worked in my favor a lot of times. So long answer to you, Jason, but I think that's the way that we do it. We do that by leading by example. We do that by stating our boundaries. And we do that by figuring out what our priorities are and then working our way towards being a priority for other people. I have some things that I feel like I'm trying to do in the middle of my day to, uh, I suppose, break through the midday slump. I think part of this too is there's inevitably a point in my day, Whitney, where I feel like how do I even say this? I realized that I've had my face in a computer for hours and I haven't gotten up, right? And so one of the things that I like to do is actually like is time block during my workday to get up and nourish myself, whether that's taking lunch, taking the dog for a walk, just going outside and being in the fresh air. And one of the things also is like, what can I take in the middle of my day to help me kind of get over that hump and also remove myself from technology. Because I know that if I sit down and I work for like five hours straight, I'm zombified. My productivity goes down. Again, we're not worshiping at the altar of productivity. But there's a point I get to where I, again, present that I'm getting things done, but I'm not giving my all to it, if that makes sense. So for me, a big thing that I'm trying to do is be better about taking a midday break and using different things to nourish myself and recharge. And we have talked about one of our favorite new supplements out there called Rellies, where we actually have Ryan and Jake, who are the founders, talked extensively about the benefits of terpenes and how great these products are. And in the middle of the day, two of their formulas that I take are their focus and then also the joy, especially if I'm grumpy. We've talked about how Jason gets grumpy in the middle of the day. The joy and the focus formulas are my midday ones. They also have a calm, but I only do that at night as part of my sleep hygiene routine. But my midday are with this focus and the joy because these have different terpenes in them. Like this one, joy has limonene, which is supposed to be a mood balancer and an uplifter. And this also has some others as well. And so um, I can't really read the label because I think my eyes are going. Maybe I need an eye test. But they have a base of MCT oil, which is a tremendous carrier. MCT is awesome. And Interesting. I can read the others. Can, yeah, because your eyes are better than mine. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce these, though. That's the problem. And they are really small. Because one word, I'm like, is there an R in there? Myrcene? Myrcene. Yes, myrcene. Myrcene. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's that? Myrcene. Well, we can look it up and see what it does. But again, it's another one of those great terpenes. And there's been a lot of research. And myrcene is basically one of the most aromatic ones. It's also found in hops and is responsible for the peppery, spicy fragrance in beer. They also find it in lemongrass, and it promotes calming effects and uplifting effects in the body. There's some really cool research. We'll actually link to an article on limonene and on myrcene. If you are research geeks like us, myrcene is also dominant in many cannabis plants in different herbs and different spices. So it's very, very cool. So we'll link to all that information if you, dear listener, want to dive into the science behind that. But it also makes things taste great. So we mentioned that one of the reasons we like Rellies is not only do we feel that mood upliftment, but they also taste awesome. So there's lemongrassy tropical notes in these that we really, really love. And I still have yet to incorporate these into my mixology, Whitney. I'm not quite the mixologist you are. But I do have some beverages here that I want to drop into probably after the podcast and see how they taste. But for you, dear listener, if you've been listening to our episodes, hearing us wax poetic about our love for Rellies, how we just want to like make sweet love to these products, you too can make sweet love to these products and order them for yourself. We have a special coupon code for you to get their terpene blends of focus and joy and of calm to help you through your day and your mood and sleep and upliftment. And that website is podcast.wellevator.com forward slash rellies. That's spelled R-E-L-L-I-E-S. And when you go to that special landing page, use the code 
20 wellies, W-E-L-L-I-E-S. We'll have that code and we'll have that website in our show notes as well. But we really recommend you try these out because they are really affordable and they're very mild. They're not going to hit you like a CBD product or a THC product sometimes does. So if you're a sensitive person and you are very open to the effects of things like flower remedies, like you know rescue remedy and things like that, we think that your body will also respond really well to these terpenes. So we're giving Rellies a shout out. We love y'all. We love your products. And Whitney and I are just huge, huge fans. So we recommend you check it out. Again, podcast.wellevator.com forward slash Rellies and use the code 20wellies to save 20% on your order. What I also wanted to bring up, Whitney, too, was this idea of using passive technology in our lives to combat invasive technologies. This is a really fascinating trend that I've observed because our buddy Adam introduced us to something called the light phone. This was about a year and a half ago, which is a new, not a new category, but it's a category of phones they're calling dumb phones. There's no social media, there's no apps, there's no notifications, there's no maps, and there's no music. All these phones can do, which is not a new idea at all, is basically send texts, and make phone calls. There's no FaceTime, there's no video chat, there's nothing. And I've also noticed that in my notifications on Instagram and Facebook, the ads I get with are all about these passive technologies to combat invasive technologies. There was another one that said, are you using your phone as an alarm? Here's this like Zen alarm clock that it was like, it was like um, the tones and the alarms on this alarm clock we're supposed to wake you up more naturally and wake you up more gently. And their whole pitch, though, was buy this Zen eco alarm clock so that you're not using your smartphone next to your bed as an alarm clock. And I just think it's interesting that there's this whole category of technology that's being implemented and positioned marketing-wise to combat other technologies. And my concern sometimes, as much as like, ooh, I want to get my light phone, and I want to get my Zen alarm clock, is that my house is just going to be filled with gadgets and tech to try and fight off other gadgets and tech, right? And I'm curious because you're much more of an early adopter than I am with. Like you've got your great new Apple headphones, you know, you have an electric car. You're typically a year or more ahead of the curve than I am on adopting certain things. So how do you feel about this wave of tech that's marketed and created to combat other tech. Does that interest you? Do you feel like it's going to be gadget overload? As an early adopter, how do you feel about all that? And are you interested in buying some of those things? It's a great question because I've been examining my relationship to tech in a lot of different ways as a result of reading digital minimalism, doing the the unplugging, and also reflecting on my relationship to productivity and efficiency. And I think one of the reasons that I enjoy tech is because it helps me feel more efficient. And I was reflecting on this a lot yesterday because, for example, I love to take notes on things. This is why I prefer digital books. I love to highlight books. I've been highlighting books as for as long as I can remember. What's interesting about that is apparently my grandfather did the same thing after my grandfather passed away. I took some of the books that he had, and when I opened them up, he had very similar marks in his book as I do. So I was like, oh, okay, like we're, maybe there's some genetic thing that's been passed down to me about loving to take notes in books. But over time, I didn't want to write in a book because I thought if I give it to somebody else, they don't necessarily want my notes unless it's like a grandchild or something, right, that loves the memory of it. But B, that it's much more efficient to highlight digitally because now I have a whole catalog of all my book notes in my Amazon Kindle library for however long that lasts. That feels more efficient. I can copy and paste a quote. Writing notes in my phone on the notes app or on my computer's notes app is more efficient than writing them in the journal. Yesterday, I wrote in my journal because I wasn't on devices and now I have to manually go type those notes into my computer if I want to use them again. Right? So, a lot of technology usage for me is about efficiency. But there's also a joy that I feel in technology. You brought up my Apple AirPods Max, which I have, the big ear headphones. They are more efficient because the battery lasts longer, you know? And just like we enjoy having devices that stay on longer, 
when I'm using headphones, I don't want to have to worry about the battery dying. It's a pain in the butt. So I think another element of technology is that it solves a pain point. That was one of the reasons I got these. I also love the design. So I align a lot with Apple as a brand. I used to work for the company, so I was deeply ingrained into it. But they've appealed to me because Apple is about high-quality products, beautiful design, creativity, and they also are very rooted in their why. And that if the book Start With Why by Simon Sinek, a lot of it is he uses an example of Apple and how Apple's been about their why, and thus their marketing is very different than other companies. And a lot of people are drawn to Apple as a company because it aligns with their desire to be different, right? So There's so many reasons that I make the decisions that I do when it comes to technology. Same thing with Tesla. You know, I wasn't really that into Tesla. I remember you being super into it, Jason. I barely even knew about the Model 3 car until I got it. And now that I have one, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the best car in the world. But it's so tech related. And I was thinking about this too yesterday because I had to go charge my car. And when I went to get my car from the charge station, I was thinking like, gosh, I'm using my iPhone to use my car. I mean, that's how the Tesla can work. You have a key, but you also can set it up through an app so that you walk up to your car and you get in the car and you start the car with your phone and everything's connected. That is really cool. That is very efficient. That is really like mentally stimulating. But is that mental stimulation necessary? Is that helping me or hindering me, right? It's saving me time. It prevents me from the pain point of losing my keys. I don't have to carry keys with me because I just have my phone. So it's like, there's a lot of perks. And Tesla has done a lot from the environmental standpoint. It's not perfect, but there's a lot of environmental benefits to that car and the company. But long-winded answer, Jason, I'm certainly examining my relationship with technology and trying to be very intentional and aware of it. You know, there's status that comes along with technology. So certainly when you buy more expensive things, there's the status side of it, you know, and that's for better or for worse. Sometimes I feel really self-conscious about having a Tesla because I'm worried that someone's going to judge me and think something about my finances, you know, without really knowing. Same thing with these headphones, like the big thing about the Apple headphones is that they're really expensive. You know, it's like, do I have to justify to people why I bought these headphones and how I had the money to do it? It's like stuff like that comes along with technology too. So it's a complicated thing. And going back to your question about are these gadgets a good or bad thing, that ties into my answer because as an early adopter, I get very excited about new technology, but I'm trying to be more mindful And there is a level, I keep forgetting what it's called. Hold on, I want to look this up. I've been meaning to for the past week. There's the curve. So before the early adopter is a group called the Innovators, according to the first article I picked up, which is on ou.edu. And man, is this an old school website, which is really funny to look at when we're talking about technology. It talks about the innovation theory, and that's the curve. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm demonstrating with my hand. But if you're not, you might have seen this curve before. And it shows how people make decisions and become adopters. And it's a very old school website on here. So the innovators are the first 2.5% of a group to adopt a new idea. The next 13.5% to adopt an innovation are labeled as early adopters. Then the early majority, the late majority, and the laggards. Innovators are eager to try new ideas to the point where their venturesomes almost become an obsession. Their interest in new ideas leads them out of a local circle of peers and into social relationships more cosmopolite than normal. I don't know what that means. Usually innovators have substantial financial resources and the ability to understand and apply complex technical knowledge. Now, the early adopters, which I consider myself to be, are in the 
greater degree of opinion leadership. They provide advice and information sought by other adopters about an innovation. They're usually respected by his or her peers and have a reputation for a successful and discreet use of new ideas. So I think that's a big differentiation is like, for example, these AirPods came out months ago. I didn't buy them the day they came out, but that's something that an innovator would do. That I didn't buy a Tesla right away. You know, I waited and, and obviously saved up my money. I waited for the model that felt more financially achievable for me. You know, there were people that bought the Tesla as soon as they possibly could and still do. That's a big difference. And a lot of that depends on your financial resources, but you're willing to take risks. And ultimately, what also puts me into that early adopter category, Jason, is that I step back and I wait to see if it makes sense and because awareness and mindfulness is important. So when it comes to these new pieces of technology, I want to make sure that it makes sense for me and that it's something that I'm being very intentional about. One thing that reminds me of is that phone that you were thinking of getting, Jason. What's it called? Like the light? Yeah, it's the light phone. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the light phone. I'm curious how you're feeling about that because that was something I was reflecting on today. And also going back to you feeling like you're having trouble resisting temptation because I actually don't find it that hard not to use my phone if I put it out of visual sight. I've mentioned on the podcast, I believe, that I have a lockbox. So I put my phone in the lockbox when I go to bed. And yesterday, I put it in there at sundown and I didn't touch it. So it was out of sight. It was in a locked setting. And that makes it really easy. If if it's turned off or on airplane mode, like I don't feel that tempted to use it. I might think about it, but it's not hard. It's not. And I think that's similar to any addiction, right? It's like if you have a drug addiction or a food addiction, yes, getting things out of visual sight is helpful, but you might literally need to lock it away or flush it down the toilet or have somebody else put it away for you because you can't resist it. And I'm curious if you feel that way, Jason, and also what is your current feeling about getting something like the light phone and and other gadgets? Oh, and also I'm curious, where do you fall on this curve? I would think you're an early majority person. So I can read you that description right here if you want to see if you fit into that. Members of the early majority will adopt new ideas just before the average member of a social system. They interact frequently with peers, but are not often found holding leadership positions. They are, their innovation decision time is relatively longer than innovators and early adopters since they deliberate some time before completely adopting a new idea. And then after that is the late majority, they're a skeptical group. I feel like you kind of fall on the line between those. You need a little bit, uh, the late majority, I should say, need more strong pressure from peers to adopt. They're cautious about innovations and reluctant to adopt until most others in their social systems do so first. I think I'm probably somewhere a blend or, as you said, in between those two categories, because to me, I've observed myself feeling drawn toward, you know, wanting to be like the cool kids, so to speak, of, oh, well, everyone's got an Apple Watch and they've got the headphones and they've got an electric car and they've got this cool thing. And, you know, I remember when Google Glass came out, you know, the, the or now everyone's got Oculus and doing VR. And so there's that part of it, which is, you know, looking at the cool stuff your friends and peer group have and going, am I missing out? But one of the reasons that I deliberate longer and I think I follow, you know, fall deeper into that early majority category, or maybe even a little bit later than that, is because I'm asking myself, is this pure desire, my motivation to get this thing, is it just pure desire and emotional magnetism toward the thing? Or is it actually going to be useful? You use the word efficient, Whitney. I use the word useful because to me, it feels a little more broad in the sense that how is this actually going to affect my life? That's what I try and ask myself and maybe predict that question or an answer to that question rather is like, okay, if I switch from a gasoline car to an electric car, which I do endeavor to do, how many actual miles per charge do I need? What am I going to be doing with this? Where am I taking the car? Does my usage of it justify the monthly payment and the insurance and the things that I'll be doing? You know, what is the usefulness factor 
versus the time and finance cost of what it takes to purchase and maintain the thing. And so I do deliberate a lot longer on most technology purchases because I want to be clearer about is it actually useful or am I just feeling the pressure to you know, have the cool new thing? And to your point, your question about getting something like the light phone, I don't know that I want two phones because on one hand, getting a piece of passive technology that's designed to combat a more invasive technology like a smartphone, as I was saying, it's like then I have the $300 for the, the second phone and then I'm paying a second monthly plan. And so then I have this other device, this other object that I'm responsible for and that I also need to pay to maintain. And so is like, is that useful? Is it, is it going to be useful for me to issue and overcome the temptation of using the apps and social media devices on my smartphone versus buying this secondary device that has none of those things and having it as like my bat phone, you know, where only a handful of people know that number and that if I'm not reach, reachable on my iPhone, they know to go to my second phone. But then I have two different things to maintain. You know, I think it's like, it's a question of usefulness and it's a question of how is this going to affect my life? So ultimately, to me, it's a deeper inquiry, Whitney, of the actual pragmatic usefulness of a thing, but also not discounting the amount of human desire that goes into things. Because as an example, if you just wanted an electric car, you could have purchased, you know, you had a Fiat before this, you could have gotten a Leaf or a Bolt or a Volt or there's a lot of other choices. But there's an emotional pull. There's a magnetism to the reason you bought a Tesla. It was an emotional choice for you. You've talked about your emotional connection to this vehicle. So to me, it's with the adoption of technology, I'm always looking at a deeper level of inquiry of how am I actually going to use this? Is it going to be useful? And what's my actual level of emotional attachment or human desire gravitating toward this thing? You know, so I think for me, it's a balancing act. And that's one of the reasons I take a lot longer to deliberate before making a purchase and bringing new technology into my life. It's a complex thing. I think that we right now have so much access. Our resources as human beings is really high for many of us. If we have the financial resources, the possibilities are endless. I mean, (laughs) reflecting on human history, it's like, the basic needs we have of food, water, shelter are well taken care of for the great majority of people. And, and actually, I say that I don't know statistically how many people don't have access to basic human needs, but it certainly seems like that's been taken care of for many people on this planet. We also have the element of privilege in all of this. And I think it's incredibly important to talk about technology from a couple different sides is one, it's a privilege to have technology. So having gratitude for what you own and not taking it lightly is incredibly important. In fact, the Tesla, I don't take for granted. It is a huge financial investment for me. You know, I don't take for granted the fact that I made it happen. And I was able to make it happen through the work that I do. And for the fact that I don't have a lot of expenses. I mean, that's part of the reason that I'm made the decision to get the car. It's like, I don't have a mortgage right now. I don't have children. I don't have massive debt. Like I had the privilege of having the financial resources, not just coming in, but going out to make that car happen. And then once I got the car, I made a very conscious effort to appreciate it every time I used it. Now, sometimes my awareness of that is higher than others, but I would say the great majority of the time that I'm even near that car, I feel in complete awe of it. You know, going back to the emotional side of it, Jason, I recognize the privilege of that car. And the same thing with other technology. Like I remember... When I was growing up, I wanted my own computer so badly. And when I got one, it was like so exciting. And then when I went to film school, Apple computers were like the thing that creative people used. And the things that you could do on an Apple computer was like everything I wanted to do. So when I got the opportunity to buy my first Apple computer, it was a huge deal for me. So I remember what it was like to not have it. 
and the work that it took for me to make that happen. So I think those things are important. But then we also have to take into consideration our privilege in terms of people that don't have access to those things and don't have the same resources as us. And also that some people use technology for very important and different reasons than us. So I think an important element of this conversation before we wrap today is to remember to be mindful of how we judge others for using technology because we don't necessarily know what they're doing. There's mental health issues on both sides. There's mental health issues if you overuse technology, but you might be using technology to aid you in your mental health. So that is a person-by-person basis. Technology connects us to one another. Technology helps us find information. It's a privilege to even use it because some people are disabled and they can't see it or they can't hear, or they can't use their fingers to type. I mean, there's so many different relationships to technology that I would love to explore more, Jason. And remember that what works and doesn't work for us is not the same for others. So I want to make sure that that's mentioned here is the inclusivity side, the privilege side, and really understanding, and even just that curve that I was talking about, like how that just the early adopter innovator mentality of like when and why people buy things or do things or use things is not universal. And I would love to bring on somebody onto the show that can talk more about different sides of this. So that would be a guest I would really like to seek out for this. I think in general, it's important for us to reduce the amount of time we spend judging. In fact, one final thing I'd love to touch upon, Jason, that I reflect a lot as I become more aware of my tech usage, my awareness about how other people use technology is heightened. And over the years when I've been striving to use my phone less, I've really noticed how other people use their devices and I have a tendency to get really judgmental. I think it's because it triggers me. There's two levels. Is one, when I see somebody else doing something, I naturally want to do it too. That's just human psychology. So when you're around other people that are engaging in a habit that you're trying to break, it's really hard to not do that habit yourself, right? So if I'm with somebody and they're on their phone, like it's a cue to me, oh, I should take out my phone. And I've asked some people in my life, including you, Jason, like I've asked people, hey, would you mind using your phone less? And sometimes people are okay and understanding, and sometimes they're not. (laughs) My sister, for example, hates it when I ask her not to use her phone. She perceives as me being controlling, and she doesn't really understand why I'm asking her. I think it's partially we're sisters, and she is reluctant to do anything that I recommend, unless she asks me for my advice. (sighs) And then there's that thing where if they see you using your phone, and then you put your phone down and ask somebody else not you know, ask them not to use it. They're like, but you were just using your phone and it becomes this whole debate. People think that you're hypocritical or something. And that's something I'm really fascinated by. But, you know, I notice this a lot on road trips, for example. One of the reasons I love driving myself on road trips is that I'm so focused on driving that I'm not using devices unless you count my car as a device. And on my last cross-country adventure, I couldn't believe how little I used my devices. I brought my iPad, my computer, my phone with me. I barely used them because I was trying to drive. (laughs) And then when I was done driving, all I wanted to do was eat and sleep. And it was like, wow, this is so great. I'm like just focused on my basic needs. I'm not on my device all the time. But I wanted to take a ton of pictures. And so I would notice myself like just picking up my phone to take pictures. And and it was fascinating because it's like you're trying to capture things around you versus living in the moment. So hopefully on my road trips for 2021, I'll have a different relationship to the experience. But the other thing I've noticed on road trips, and I've taken a lot in my life, is that if I'm driving, the person in the passenger seat is on their phone. It drives me absolutely crazy. Because it feels, A, like I'm missing out. I'm envious of them. It's like, ugh, you get to use your phone. Like, I wish I could use my phone. And B, it's so distracting as a driver because you can see in your peripheral vision, like someone on their phone. And so your brain's firing away like, ooh, they're on their phone. Like, what are they doing? And 
you know, and then there's that side of being present. Here you are driving along and feeling present to the drive and the environment. You're seeing all these things and you're taking in the world. And then someone next to you is just like immersed in their technology. And it feels like such a contrast that I tend to notice it. And today I was thinking, you know what? This is a reason why I think I really enjoy doing road trips on my own. (laughs) I don't have to worry about somebody else. Unless I can travel with somebody that's really mindful about their tech usage. I don't know if I want to do it again. (laughs) I love that you admitted that, first of all. You know, it's also it is interesting to choose in situations where everyone's using tech to not do so. And just to piggyback really quickly on what you said, a really recent example that I have, well, every single week, Whitney, is when I go to physical therapy, I drive from Los Angeles to see my doctor in Costa Mesa. So it's, you know, like a 45 minute drive. And the way that they have the doctor's office set up is they have multiple treatment tables for physical therapy. So there are stations, right? And you'll see people getting nodes and electrodes and machines to decrease inflammation. And, you know, they're lying on their back or they're lying on their stomach or they're on a machine. And so there's people in different stations in the doctor's office doing their therapy. When they're receiving passive treatments, like they're laying down on a massage table and getting one of the machines, every single time I walk into the room, everybody's on their phone. They're laying down on their back and they're getting like, you know, whatever, 20, 30 minute treatment. And they're laying on their back and they have their hands extended in front of their head. They're lying in, lying down on their back and their arms are extended outward for 20, 30 minutes just on their phone. And so I remember having a conscious thought when I looked around and looked at every single person on their phone during treatment, I said, I don't want to do that. So now when I lay down and I get my treatment, the whole thing is about 90 minutes, my whole physical therapy sessions. I don't pick up my phone once. Like when I lay down and I get my treatment, I'm either staring at the ceiling for 20 to 30 minutes, just letting my thoughts do what they do, or I literally close my eyes. And it was so interesting at first to observe myself thinking, you're just staring at a ceiling. That's weird. And then the other part of me was like, that's actually not weird because... Before we had these things, that's what people did. They went to therapy and just sat there. And like, and what it's done though, Whitney, has really allowed me to pay attention to nuances of how my body is responding to the treatments, how the muscles feel. Like I can feel, okay, maybe that's a little too intense and we need to dial it down, or maybe that's not enough. So as a result of not being on my phone during the 90 minutes of treatment, I'm able to tune into my body more. But to your point, it is fascinating to observe a room full of people getting treatments and everyone's got their phones in front of their faces. And so I actually feel like maybe it's allowing my body to heal in in a different way because I am more present to the healing process, you know? So it is interesting to be sort of the outlier, you know, now that everyone has mass adoption of technology to be in a social setting where you're the one not using it, literally the only one not using it. It is a fascinating scenario to put oneself in. So I actually endeavor to put myself in more of those scenarios, a la when we go back to conferences, trade shows, concerts, social gatherings, which fingers crossed that will come sooner than later. When we're back in those kind of scenarios, Whitney, I really want to make a conscious effort to not be on my fucking phone, like to really be with people. That's something I'm saying publicly that I want to start practicing in the home so that when we are out in these larger gatherings, I'm with people, like I'm looking them in the eye, I'm connecting with them. And also, if I sense that they're checked out, actually bringing it to their attention and asking like, hey, would you mind putting your phone away so we could actually like have a like a deeper connect right now? Actually making that request of people, I endeavor to do that. And so this conversation has led me to this desire of like, yeah, when the world, again, I always say this quote, opens back up, whatever that means, I don't want to have my face in a device. I want to be with human beings and deeply connect with them. So that's my intention. And I would love your, when we are at trade shows or events together, Whitney, you know, if you're also on board for this kind of way of being to remind each other, because I'm sure there will be moments where I'm like, oh, sucked in and like, no, 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 that's not what you want. You want to be with human beings. You want to be with them. So I want to be better at that and also make a request that you also help hold me accountable to that. So with that being said, dear listener, we'd also love to hear from you of how your relationship to technology is going. Are you feeling enslaved to it? Are you feeling caged by it? Do you feel like it's a sense of 
connection and liberation and actually a tool that is helping you in your life. It's a complicated thing, I think, for most people. And we always love to hear your opinion on the topical matter of our episodes here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. So you can shoot Whitney and myself an email. It's hello at wellevator.com. You can also leave a comment on our show notes in our blog post, which is at our website, wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section, and it will take you to our show notes and transcript for this episode and all of our previous episodes. And again, if you want to get our special offer that is running through April 1st, we have our Rellies discount, which again, you can go to podcast.wellevator.com forward slash Rellies and use the coupon code 220Wellies, W-E-L-L-I-E-S. We'll have that in the show notes. And we really want you to try these great new terpenes and see how you feel about them. So with that, we look forward to hearing from you and getting more feedback and any requests that you have for subject matter you would like us to research and cover on future episodes. We're always open to those suggestions. So until next time, dear listener, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. We appreciate your love, your reviews, your listenership, and all of your shares on social media. We've been getting a lot of new people tuning in. And it's always a delight to receive not only your emails, but people shouting us out on places like Instagram and Facebook and uh, sharing your listenership and your favorite episodes that always tickles us pink. So (laughs) until next time, we love you. We appreciate you. Thanks for the support. And we'll be back with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable very soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.